Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 74. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 17 through 20 of 2 Samuel and follow with a consideration of murder, murder, and more murder. In this episode, all matters will be resolved, and there will be blood, a lot of it. Avshalom has finally executed his plan for revenge. First, he murdered his half-brother Amnon, who raped his sister Tamar, and then he deposed his father David, who, though vexed, sat idly by and did nothing. With the beginning of chapter 17, Achitofel counsels Avshalom to attack and finish off David. But Hushai, the archite, counsels patience, quote, you yourself know of your father and his men, that they are warriors, and that they are bitter men, like a bear in the field bereaved of its young. Hushai recommends a proper mustering of the army for a final confrontation, which will take time. And when his recommendation is accepted, he sends runners to David to warn him of Avshalom's next move. Are you coming to the Cut to Achitofel, whose counsel Avshalom has rejected. The sage advisor departs the palace and calmly returns to his hometown. He sees to his affairs. He is methodical and calculating. True, counselors are often ignored, but Achitofel realizes that by listening to Hushai, Avshalom has doomed his monarchy to defeat. David will return and purge all of Avshalom's loyalists. So Achitofel knows what's awaiting him. And thus, after he gets his business in order, including a burial plot, he hangs himself. Avshalom places Amasa in command of his forces. Amasa is the son of Avigail, daughter of Yishai, which makes him not only Yoav's first cousin, but David's nephew, which makes him, if my math is correct, Avshalom's first cousin as well. David also prepares for battle, dividing his forces into three divisions, each with a separate role in the upcoming battle. But the one command given to all three commanders is, quote, deal gently for me with the lad of Shalom. Robert Alter renders David's command le'atli in, quote, the time-honored and eloquent rendering of the King James Version. But its meaning is closer to the verb used in a later verse, quote, watch over. So the text tells us, quote, the battle spread out over all the countryside, and the forest devoured more of the troops than the sword devoured on that day. A hit, a fine hit. <laughs> Including Avshalom himself, who was riding his mule when his voluminous curly hair became entangled in the low-hanging branches of a great terebinth. Quote, and he dangled between heaven and earth while the mule which was beneath him passed on. So when word reaches Yoav that Avshalom is hanging helpless from a tree, Yoav is, well, dumbfounded. He berates the soldier. Are you kidding me? You had him. And had you had him right now, I'd be giving you ten pieces of silver and a belt. To which the soldier replies, You could have offered me a thousand pieces of silver. I heard what the king ordered just as well as you. At which point Yoav takes three sticks, finds the hamstrung prince, and, quote, thrust them into Avshalom's heart. Yoav's armor bearers finish Avshalom off. Then they unceremoniously dump Avshalom's body into a hole and cover it with stones. 
but how to tell David about the war and how to tell him about Avshalom. A pair of runners is sent to the king, but they arrive in the wrong order, the second runner having passed the first on the way back to the king. And the thing is that David kind of has a history of lashing out and killing the bearers of bad tidings. So each arrives assuming that the other already related the bad news. But despite the euphemisms and the evasions and the babbling, David figures it out. Avshalom is dead. Quote, and the king was shaken, and he went up to the upper room over the gate, and he wept, and thus he said as he went, My son, Avshalom, my son, my son, Avshalom, would that I had died in your stead, Avshalom, my son, my son. Now imagine you're a loyalist of David who goes out to fight against the rising tide of support for Avshalom, risking not only your life, but the well-being of your family, because if Avshalom wins, you supported the losing side, you might as well pack up and leave the country, if you make it out of the country alive. Now imagine that you, as a loyalist to David, are wounded in combat, fighting the rising tide of support for Avshalom, but David still wins. At least you don't have to move, but imagine how you must feel if your king David treats the victory like a defeat. Imagine if your king, the man for whom you shed your blood, is more concerned about the vanquished usurper than the men who fought for him. That's what Yoav is thinking as he pulls David aside and, for lack of a better word, chastises him. Quote, you have today shamed all your servants who have saved your life today and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines to love those who hate you and to hate those who love you. David snaps out of it, and in good time, too, because the ensuing political mess will command all of his attention and political acumen, because, you see, there is now a huge power vacuum in Israel. Avshalom had rallied the people behind him, the Judahites and the tribes of the north. The north remembers. But now David is set to return, and Avshalom is dead. So one cannot assume the people will just shift their allegiance back to the king who fled Jerusalem like a thief in the night, except it was during the day. In any event, so David turns to his kin, the Judahites, and proposes that they should be the first to come on side, and that, furthermore, Amasa, Avshalom's chief of staff, would replace Yoav as his chief of staff. Was it a conciliatory move? Who knows? But the Judahites bite and accept David as their king. When David sets out from Machanaim to cross the Jordan to return to Jerusalem, it's like old home week. He bumps into Shimi ben Gera, the Benjaminite who cursed him and pelted him with stones on his way out. Again, Avishai ben Tzruya wants Shimi's head, and again David calms the hot-headed killer son of Tzruya. David also meets Mephibosheth, the son of Yonatan. Recall that David had met Ziva, Mephibosheth's servant, on his way out of Jerusalem. And Ziva told how Mephibosheth was excited by David being deposed, hoping the people would restore him to the throne. All the while, hoping that David would then condemn Mephibosheth and turn over all of Mephibosheth's property to him. But Mephibosheth has a different story. He denies Ziva's slander. He claims that he has been loyal all along. An impatient David declares that Ziva and Mephibosheth should split Mephibosheth's property, a strange ruling, as either Ziva is a liar, in which case he should be condemned to death, or Mephibosheth is a liar, in which case he should be executed. Nonetheless, it's a strange ruling that Mephibosheth accepts, quote, let him even take it all, seeing that my lord the king has come safe and sound to his house. 
And just as fiercely loyal Chusha the Archite saw David off, David is greeted last by Barzillai the Giladite on his return. What should follow is a glorious reinstatement, but instead a war of words between the Judahites and representatives of the remaining tribes devolves into real war. Chapter 20 finds David fighting off another challenge to his throne, this one from Sheva ben Bichri, a Benjaminite, who declared, quote, We have no share in David, no portion have we in Jesse's son, every man to his tent, O Israel. And so, once again, this leads But this time, David is ready. Well, sort of ready. He's back in Jerusalem long enough to dispatch the ten concubines who slept with Avshalom to, quote, a house under watch before ordering Amasa to muster the Rohirrim and report to the king in three days. When Amasa fails to show, David is grievously worried, quote, now Sheva ben Bichri will, will do us more harm than Avshalom. So he orders Avishai ben Sriya to take up the pursuit. Notice who's not invited to this little party, except he comes anyway. That's right, Yoav and his soldiers and mercenaries take up the charge and encounter Amasa on the road by Givon. When Yoav reaches out to greet his cousin Amasa by tugging on his beard playfully, Yoav, quote, struck him in the belly and spilled his innards to the ground. No second blow did he need, and he died. Two verses later, we read that, quote, Amasa was wallowing in blood in the midst of the road, and the man saw that all the troops had come to a halt, and he moved Amasa aside from the road to the field and flung a cloak over him. Yoav's pursuit is relentless, eventually trapping Sheva ben Bichri in the city of Abel of Beit Ma'acha, where he lays siege to it, erecting a rampart from which he seeks to pull the city's walls down. From high on the rampart, Yoav is addressed by a wise woman, who asks him to set aside violence. Kind of like the wise woman from Tekoa, Yoav himself had sent to David. When Yoav explains why he's come to Abel of Beit Ma'acha to lay hands on Sheva ben Bichri, the seditious traitor, the woman says to Yoav, quote, Look, his head is about to be flung to you from the wall. And it is. At which point Yoav blows a shofar and the siege is called off. He returns to Jerusalem, triumphant, where David reestablishes and retrenches himself as king over all of Israel. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. In previous episodes of Tanakhcast, I've explored moments which seem more appropriate for Westeros than the ancient land of Israel. Specific moments when the moral order seems to break down, and as Seneca said, homo homini lupus, man is wolf to man. I went back and looked at those moments because I was curious about how far down the social ladder that breakdown went. It is the stuff of Shakespearean drama for leading members of society to scheme and stab each other. But was the farmer plotting against the miller? Was the cook poisoning his master? In a word, yes. The story of Sodom and Amorah comes quickly to mind about how a mob almost tore Lot and his family apart for housing guests. But I'm thinking specifically of a similar mob in the book of Judges, when the men of Givah gang rape and murder an anonymous Levite's concubine, an act so outrageous and over the line, even for a society where, quote, every man did what was right in his own eyes, that the reckoning for this outrage sparks a civil war 
which almost results in the annihilation of one of Israel's tribes. The depravity and disconnection from a moral center is so suffused that tale it seeped down into the roots of the soil. There were no good guys in a sea of bad guys, and there were bad guys at every level of society. The host, the Levite, the mob of Givahite men, the tribal elders who shielded the rapists, the tribal elders who gave the order to annihilate the Benjaminites down to the last man, woman, and child. And then, with an irony not lost on anyone, it's from the survivors of Giv'ah that Shmuel picks a king, Shaul, to rule over the nation. An unruly nation. But is that unruliness and depravity also at work here? And what's going on here anyway? So if you're just joining the program, Israel is in a paroxysm of a full-scale coup. Avshalom second in line to the throne, murders Amnon to avenge his sister, and then playing the long game, rolls his revenge into removing his father from power. Building a coalition of elites, specifically the Judahite elite, on a foundation of populist rhetoric that galvanizes the people, Avshalom wins. He chases David out of Jerusalem, sleeps with David's concubines, and becomes king of Israel. The coup is concluded rather bloodlessly. Surprise, surprise. But what Avshalom does really should not be done. Sons should not lash out at their fathers. Concubines should not be violated in the light of day in the public eye. With each of Avshalom's acts, the level of the discourse and behavior deteriorates even more. What was once totally unacceptable and unthinkable becomes thinkable and accepted. And it's odd, considering that what David did in previous episodes also knocked the bar down numerous pegs. In fact, it probably set the tone for bar knocking to begin with. And, and just when you think it can't go any lower, you discover that there's a cellar with a sub-basement that has a tunnel underneath that descends through the Earth's core and comes out the other side. And there are these isolated moments when David tries to stem the tide of this descent, giving his commanders explicit instructions to spare Avshalom. Although not Avshalom's supporters, whose only crime was believing in Avshalom, well, you can just kill them all. And even when Yoav violates that order, he does what shouldn't be done. He, he does it in the most brutish manner possible. He strikes out at the helpless Avshalom, but doesn't have the huevos to finish the job himself. He leaves that to his lackeys, who dump Avshalom's body in a pit. In the process of this throne gaming, where either you win or you die, many people die, and die horribly. The first is Achitophel, who hangs himself. There are Avshalom and David's men, the faceless anonymous soldiers who die in combat, who shed their blood for their king, needlessly. And there's Avshalom himself, lynched, essentially, by Yoav's armor-bearers. And then there's Amasa, who's gutted like a freshwater sockeye. And then there are the countless hundreds more who die in the skirmishes between Yoav's men and the insurgents under the leadership of Sheva ben Bichri. And then there's Sheva ben Bichri himself, who was probably also lynched behind the walls of Abel Abed Ma'acha before his head was tossed over it. So much blood. And for what? Well, it is a Game of Thrones after all. It's all about power and glory and prestige and wealth. But it's also about a man espying a woman bathing on a roof and a moment of temptation, an act of moral failure, and then murder, murder, and more murder. And it's a little bit sad. 
If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 75, when we conclude the second book of Samuel with chapters 21 and 24.